The outline there says, uh, Beloved Children of God. Imagine with me this morning uh, that God is thinking about you right now. What do you assume God is thinking as he looks at you right now? Well, this morning I want us to look at a letter written by the Apostle John to a group of people who became followers of Jesus in a very challenging situation. Uh, When they became Christians, some false teachers arose among them. And these teachers tried to turn these true followers of Christ away from following Christ. And it seems that uh, these teachers actually had created division in the church. They promoted sins of hatred, selfishness, and loving the things of the world. At the time John is actually writing this first letter to them, this first letter to this particular church, uh, these uh, false teachers had just left the church. And they left behind a devastated flock that doubted its life before God. Some even assume this letter may have been perhaps written to the church at Ephesus. Now, I am guessing if we went around to interview them and ask them the same question, this devastated flock, what do you think is God thinking about you when he looks at you? I'm thinking that they would most likely just use one word. Disappointment. Disappointment. If we're honest, there are times when many of us who truly follow Christ feel like that. We think God is disappointed with us. We look at our lives and we see only sin and failure. As true followers of Christ, we enjoy so many privileges from God. He has not only sent his precious son to lay down his very life on the cross for our sins. God showers us every day with his life. And yet, this truth of who God is and how much he loves us, of his loving and tender care, doesn't seem to match how we relate to him. And if we are honest, we are, the way we live our lives, in every way, because we are sinners, we are in every way a disappointment. Now, the Apostle John wrote this letter to assure first century Christians that if we are true followers of Christ, actually, if we are truly born again, God does not look at us with disappointment. Yes, the way we live is disappointing, it's shameful, but when God looks at us, Even though God is angry at sin, because we are in Christ, he looks at us with eyes, through the eyes of love. Right in the middle of the letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, John tells us two important truths about the love of God for us, how God sees all true followers of Christ. Those who have truly repented of their sins and have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is you, how does God look at you? If that's not you, well... How God looks at you, what I'm about to say, doesn't, really, doesn't apply to you at all. But if you have truly repented and you've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how God looks at you. Two truths in your outline. First of all, we are God's beloved children. We are God's beloved children now. God looks at you as his beloved child now. That's how God looks at you. If you have truly surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ... The most amazing truth about you is that God is now your father. God is now your father. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 there. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. You know, when John says we are called children of God, it means we carry God's name. You are like a new adopted child who receives a new family name and the blessings that come with being in that new adopted family. But our adoption by God is different from human adoption because our adoption by God involves being reborn in the spirit as children of God or being brought from death into life. The Holy Spirit now lives in us. No, so we don't only carry God's name, we're now in that sense of the indwelling of the Spirit. We are now brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been born again. You know, when a white family adopts a black child, the child inherits everything, right? Except the race. That's always true when you have adoption across races. The child remains the same, except the race. It remains different from the rest. But when God adopts us into his family, God the Holy Spirit gives us a new birth that changes our fundamental nature inside. You see, you must understand that being a Christian is not a set of beliefs that we have and ascend to. There is that. But it is a fundamental change that God the Holy Spirit works in our heart, brings us from death into life. We've been born again. Have you been born again? Have you received new life from God? Well, if you have, you've been changed inside. First John chapter 2, uh, verse 29, just a verse before this says this. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And he, in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Do you see the difference there? There's a group of people in the world that haven't been born again, and they can't recognize who we are. But if you've been changed by the Holy Spirit, if you've been given new life, you've been born again. And you're not like the world. And so the world comprises of two groups of people, the dead and the living. The born again and the, those who are still dead. And what John is saying to us is this. If you are a true follower of Jesus, the life of God now lives in you. God is now your father by name and nature because of his love for you. And this love of God for us boggles my mind, says John. I cannot help myself but to scream out loud. What sort of unique and out of this world love is this? That's what literally John means in the original translation of those words. See what kind, what foreign, what alien, what otherworldly love is this? That we should be called children of God. John is amazed. As you read those verses, you'll be picking that up. He's amazed. He's screaming this out loud. It boggles him. That God should love us like this. That God should make us his beloved children now in Christ. Why is John so amazed? Well, as I said, because we're, ch- we're children of God in Christ now. But what's so special about that? Well, John does not tell us here, but based on the rest of the letter, there are three reasons we can deduce. First of all, God's love to us is amazing because of who this God is. To many of us, God is just a word. 
But God is not simply a word. God is God. And I'll explain that in a minute. You see, we know the weight of someone's love for us by their status compared to us, isn't it? So a gift that has been given to you by His Majesty, King Charles III, is likely to mean more to you than if the same gift was given to you by your neighbor. You know, nice guy, but he's not, Prince Charles, he's not King Charles, is he? Do you see? The giver changes the value of the gift and our appreciation of that gift. We, in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been loved by God. Who is God? Well, listen to chapter 2, paragraph 1 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which gives us the biblical answer. And free copies are in the foyer. Paragraph 2 says this, chapter 2, paragraph 1. Who is God? The Lord our God is our only living and true God. He is infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be comprehended except by himself. He is the most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He alone has immortality and dwells in the light which no one can approach. He is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. He is in every way infinite. Most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is the rewarder of all that seek him diligently. He is just and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin, and you by no means clear the guilty. Paragraph 2 carries on, doesn't it? It says this, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself. He is self-sufficient. He does not need any creature that he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. He is the only fountain of all being. Of whom, by whom, and to whom are all things. And he has sovereign dominion over all creatures. To do by them, for them, or to whatever pleases him. All things are open and manifest before him. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of any creature. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. Beloved, it is mind-boggling that this God, who has no need of us, who is nothing like us, not only bothered to create us, but also sent his own son to die for our sins. And that's why John says this. See, what kind of love is this that the Father has given us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. If you're a true born again, this is your Father. So we are amazed. John is amazed at, at the love of God because of who God is. The second reason why John is amazed is because 
is amazed is that God's love to us is amazing to us because of who we are. So he's amazed because of who God is and he's amazed because of the recipients of this love. We are nothing like God. And we have no love for God in of our fallen nature. You know, if you got some gift from someone you're nice to, it won't prove their love to you compared to if you got a gift from someone you always offend. You accept that? You always offend someone and they're nice to you. You're like, whoa, what's that? That's amazing. If they're nice to you all the time, well, I'm nice to them, they're nice to me, so what's the big deal? Right? God is full of love, full of beauty, full of goodness to us. But none of us treat God as he deserves to be treated. We deserve his punishment, not his love. And yet God, out of the abundance of his mercy and love, has lavished upon us love, infinite love in Christ. He has brought us as brought us, us sinners into his family in Christ. That's what this one says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We, who are just like the world have been loved by God and given this amazing relationship as his children. That's mind-boggling to John. Because you see, there's an infinite distance between us and God. We are not just his creatures, finite creatures. We are fallen creatures. The third reason. The third reason John is amazed at the love of God is the cost of God's love to us. God gave us the precious gift of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus. We know the weight of someone's love for us by what it costs the person to show us affection. The sacrifice the person bears is the true measure of the love they have for us, right? So if a person sacrifices all their life savings to give us their life savings to us, it will mean much more to us than if a person sort of just used their spare change to get us a gift. The quality of the gift matters. And here's why this is important. Because John later on talks about the quality of God's gift to us. He talks about the huge price that God paid to share his love with us. What is that price? God sent his eternal son to die for our sins. First John chapter 4 verse 9 to 10 says this. A well-known passage. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, the tragedy of human existence is that we are by nature rebels against God. We've been cut off from intimate life with the most holy God. You know, just as day and night cannot happen at the same time, the most holy God cannot share life with sinners. You've got to get that. God is holy. He's completely other. We are rebels against him. 
And just as night and darkness can't live together, you and I cannot live with the Holy God. We deserve only his punishment. So for God to make us his beloved children, we need a God to reach out to us whilst we're still sinners and pay the price for our sin against him. You see, every religion in the world, when you ask the question, how do you have life with God? What is the answer? They say, we must make an effort to get there. They say, God is on top of the mountain and we must climb our way up there. Christianity says, yes, God is on top of the mountain, but we don't climb up to him. He climbs down to us. He has come to bridge the infinite gap. He has come to do what we couldn't do. That's called grace. What we couldn't do. We needed God to reach out to us whilst we're still sinners and pay the price because God is just. Therefore, a price must be paid for our sin if God is going to remain holy. And God paid the price for our sin in the person of Jesus. He suffered. You broke the law. God met the demands of the law in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life in all the ways we sinners failed to do. As one who was perfect and sinless, our Lord Jesus therefore was fit to pay the price for our sin. And when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, his father poured on him all the wrath and judgment that we deserve. Christ on the cross suffered your punishment, the punishment that you deserved from God. Now listen to me. Listen to some of the benefits of the loving death of Christ. What has Christ accomplished for you if you're trusting in Jesus? Listen to some of the loving benefits Christ has accomplished if you have truly repented of your sins. First of all, the death of Jesus has reconciled you to God. Before you were an enemy of God, but Christ died for you. And you now have peace with God. You are now his beloved child. So reconciliation. The death of Jesus has redeemed you back to God. What does that mean? Well, before you were a slave of sin, bound for hell, Jesus, your Samson, as it were, broke your chains. He set you free. And if anyone's in Christ, he's free indeed. The death of Jesus is not just your reconciliation or your redemption. It is also your substitute. It is your substitute for all your sins, past, present, and future. On the cross, our Lord Jesus drank the very wrath of God designed for us. The gospel in four words, Christ in my place. It pleased Christ, you see, the eternal Son of God, to willingly suffer the spiritual violence of God in our place. And because Jesus has done that, the death of Jesus now keeps you safe from the very wrath of God. Or to quote Stephen Shannock, the fire of God's judgment has now been confined within its flames. Because Christ bore the very judgment of God for you. The death of Jesus is also your sacrifice. Before you couldn't enter the presence of the Holy God. Your sin was a barrier that kept, us from, that kept you from God. Because God is holy. But Christ on the cross, our Lord Jesus on the cross, tore the curtain open. That's why when Jesus was dying, we see that in the temple. The curtain has been torn, isn't it? The barrier has been completely removed to God. 
The crucified death of Jesus is now the only means through which we enter the very presence of God. In fact, Jesus himself, his body, is the very temple in which man and God now can commune. We looked at that in Colossians chapter 1. Finally, the death of Jesus is your victory. We shouldn't say finally because there's more we can say. By ending here, the death of Jesus is your victory, isn't it? It defeats our enemies of sin, death, Satan, and hell. We don't have to pretend there is no Satan. We don't have to pretend there is no hell. We can believe the truth of God's word and know that Christ has conquered these enemies for us. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Beloved, there is no greater proof of this unique and foreign love of God for us than the precious death of our Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. And of course we can go beyond that. We can speak of his resurrection. We could speak of his ascension into heaven. We could speak of his second coming. All of these things are pointing to the love of God for us in Christ. But when we fix on the cross, we see something amazing, isn't it? That dwarfs really everything because the loving death of our great redeemer on the cross was like the sun shining upon the garbage dump. Because there's nothing lovely about us. As I said, we deserve only hell. And yet Christ, the son of righteousness, entered this dark world and let his love shine ever so brightly for us on that cross. The Apostle Paul is rightly, the Apostle John even, and Paul would be the same, is rightly shocked at the glorious love of God for us. And you, as you sit here, it should shock you. It should amaze you. And if you're a child of God already, even now as I speak, it amazes you that God loves you. If you're trusting in Jesus today, you are now the beloved child of God. Regardless of your experiences in life, this is the truth that defines you. That God now looks upon you as he looks upon the Lord Jesus. See, because of our union with Christ, God looks upon you as he looks upon the Lord Jesus. How does God look upon Jesus? Well, we see that in the baptism of Jesus, isn't it? This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. By virtue of our union, being united with Christ, that's how God looks at you. If you're trusting in Jesus. You now stand before God. Not dressed in your goodness, not dressed in your effort, not dressed in your relationship, not dressed in things you own you, not dressed in the things of this world, of how the world seeks to define you. You now stand in Jesus, dressed in the beauty and holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what defines you. You are in Christ. As I said last week, you are an insider in Jesus. And so, whatever is going on in your life, Father's Day being a difficult day for many. That's not what defines you. The question for you is not your circumstances, what you've experienced in life. The question for you is, are you in Christ or not? If you are in Christ, nothing else matters. If you are not in Christ, well, you are to be pitied of all the people. Be in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can say, I have been loved with a love that answers all my deepest longings in this world. All my longings for perfection, security, fulfillment. 
all my longing to be loved, is all found in Christ. I have been loved with unconditional love. God in Christ loves me. He has taken all my filth and dirtiness in Christ. He knows all about my doubts. He knows all about my fears. He knows all about my secret thoughts, my secret sins. He knows me inside out. Before him, I don't have to be afraid. Because he loves me, not because of anything I have done, but because of what he has done. Beloved, here is the answer to the world's longing for identity. Here is the answer for the world's longing for purpose. Why are we in this world? To bask in this love of God. Who am I? Well, the answer is if you're in Christ, you are God's beloved child. Listen, God in Christ has not only lovingly forgiven you every wrong, no matter how much you mess up, he has declared you perfect forever. The good news of the gospel is that if you truly repented of your sin, if you have truly repented of your sin, don't miss that. If you have, if you trust in Jesus, you are loved with the unconditional love of the Trinity. Are you feeling rotten inside today? Do you feel discouraged perhaps by some circumstances in your life? Do you feel lonely, worthless? Do you feel disappointed? Are you struggling in some area of your life? John is saying, shift your focus away from your temporal circumstances and fix them on what matters. Fix your heart firmly on what matters, which is the unchanging love of God for you. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means God's attributes never change. His love for you is unchanging. And so this morning, if you're a true child of God, let the scale and immensity of the love of God in Jesus sink deep within your heart. Let his love become the center of your relationship with God. And let it define how you relate to the world. Now, someone may say, Chola, I hear what you're saying, that I'm loved by God. But you don't know the week I've just had. I do not feel that love at the moment. I do not feel that I am truly loved by God. I understand that. We live in a felt society where we define the way we relate to people, the church, and especially God based on our feelings. I understand that. In fact, it is normal to feel like that, especially when we are suffering. But when I feel like that, when I hear my feelings talking to me, I've always found the words of John Bradford the matter very helpful. He says this, faith must go before us, then feeling will follow. Though you do not feel as you'd like to, do not doubt. Hope beyond hope, as Abraham did. Do you get that? The issue is not what we feel, but what we truly believe in our hearts. Do you believe that God is your true father in Christ or not? That's the question that confronts all of us here who profess faith in Jesus. Do you believe God is your father or not? Whether this truth right now is warming your heart or not, you must trust this truth because it is the living word of God. Trust in his divine love, not in your feelings. Oh, Lord, save us from believers who always are going on about their feelings. You must not only take every thought captive, 
in Christ and obedient to the Word of God, you must bring your very feelings subject to the Word of God. And as you keep trusting in His love, little by little, you grow to experience the comfort and encouragement of His love every day. The Apostle John has reminded us here, isn't it? That if we are trusting the Lord Jesus, how does God look at us? Well, first thing, we are God's beloved children now, right now. Right now. See what kind of the love the Father has given us, past tense, that we should be called children of God. And so, present tense, so we are now. Truth number one, we are God's beloved children. Second truth, and I'll be quick on this. We are God's beloved children, not just now, but forever. Forever. A story is, um, is told about the American novelist Mark Twain. So one day Mark Twain boards a train, right? And he's on a long-distance journey somewhere in the U.S. And the porters are quite pleased to have such a famous man on board, Mark Twain, right? But when they come to his car, right, to punch his ticket, as they used to do in those days, Mark Twain starts looking furiously in his pocket, right? He just can't seem to find his ticket. <laughs> that has happened to many of us before, haven't they? We're on the train. We're like, all of a sudden, where's the, train? where's the ticket going, right? Usually we find it, right? But the porter says, he can't find this, right? And the porter says to him, sir, it's fine. I know who you are. You don't have to find your ticket. We're just happy that you are here. Relax and enjoy your trip. It's a wonderful thing. I wish they'd do that when I'm traveling. But they're like, we're happy you are here, right? And, and the porter goes off, right? Well, a few hours later, as they tend to do, they like to walk back, mama, on long journeys. So the porter walks back. He comes back to the car where Mark Twain is. And you do believe he finds him still looking in his pocket searching everywhere for the ticket. Again, the man reassures him and says, Sir, look, you don't really have to do that, right? I know who you are. Everyone knows who you are. There's no need for you to find your ticket. And that's when Mark Twain stands up and says to him, Look, listen to me, young man. I know who I am too. That's not the problem. The problem is I don't know where I am going. And he needs that ticket to tell him that. Now, now, Mark Twain was right, isn't it? It is important in life not only to know who you are, but also where, you, where you're going in life. What is your ultimate destination? If you were to die today, where would you go? Where would you go? Would you go to be with God, or would you go into a Christless eternity to suffer eternal judgment in hell? What is your destination? Well, the good news of the Bible is that if you're a true follower of Jesus, there's no doubt about where you're going. Because it is in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's where the first point came from. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. There is a future for us when Christ will descend into glory. And that's where we are headed. To meet Christ. 
You know, I have an Apple TV, uh, and, and when it's in standby mode, it shows you all the beautiful places in the world. And I'm sure some of you have this. It's been captured by some drone, right? And it's wonderful. Like, I wouldn't say, if you're in a cute time, don't cute time. I, I preached about that Sunday evening. You don't cute time. But if you're resting, right, you can sometimes flick through that. When I'm resting, sometimes I'm like, that's, that's an interesting graphic there. And it says all this beautiful landscape, this coast, these islands, these sunsets, and it, it, sometimes it shows you the stars in the heavens and the underwater seas. It's just breathtaking. But I think about those. Every time I watch them, at least quite often, I, I think to myself, this is beautiful. But none of this compares to the glory that awaits me when I see Christ face to face on that great day. In all of his glory and splendor. Can you imagine seeing the face of Christ, our God? Imagine basking in his love every second. Well, it is impossible to imagine. We can't imagine. It's beyond imagining. And the good news is that you don't need to imagine anything because if you're trusting in Jesus, you'll be there. Fully fitted with a new body. Custom made from heaven. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but, when we, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him, Christ, as he is. We'll be transformed. Paul talks about that in Philippians, that we'll, these bodies will put on a new body, like the body of Christ in his perfect humanity. You know, in this world we are burdened with diseases, pain and other weaknesses. But God created our bodies, and he loves them. So he has a plan to transform our bodies. You won't, get just, you won't just get a new perfect body. You'll get a new character to go with it. Your character will be, trans, will be like the Lord Jesus in his perfect humanity on that great day. If you want to know how that will be like, just read the gospel. If you want to know what character you have, just read the gospel and gaze at the character of Christ. That's how you will be like in his perfect humanity. For the first time, you'll be perfectly devoted to God like our Lord Jesus Christ was like on earth. On earth. And that's why you should read the gospel regularly because they are reminding you they are a photoshoot of your future. Because as we Christ, not in his divinity, um, but in his perfect humanity... We are seeing something of who we'll be like. Remember, Christ is fully God and fully man. But as we think of his perfect humanity, we are seeing something of how we will be transformed to be like on that day. For the first time, we'll be totally devoted to God. Because Christ's art was set on doing the will of God and the will of God alone. For the first time, your inner life, on that great day, we'll be filled with every wonderful fruit of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness. Oh, beloved, for the first time, you will be able to love other people perfectly. Your thoughts about them will be holy thoughts. You will be holy and you will never sin again. That's what John is telling us. Oh, friends, I hope you agree with me that I hope you will agree with me that you are tired of sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are tired against sinning against our best friend. Christ shows us such tenderness, such love, such compassion. 
I hope you are tired of letting him down. I hope you are tired of sinning today and repenting tomorrow. I hope you are tired of upsetting people in your life about this or that. I hope you are tired of your imperfections. You are tired of the sin around you. Not just tired this afternoon because of the sermon, this morning because of the sermon or the weather. In heaven, I'm sure you hear perfect sermons. So there's a sense in which I hope you're tired of the sermons you hear. But I hope you are tired of the sin around you. My prayer is that I hope as you hear the sermons, they wait your appetite for heaven. I hope you're tired of the nonsense in our society. I hope you have what I call a holy tiredness. If you are tired, if you have this holy tiredness, the promise of this verse is for you. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You are the beloved child of God and God will transform you to be like our precious Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. As someone has said, out of prison we come to reign. That's the Christian story. Out of the prison of this world, we are headed for reigning with Christ. This is your royal heritage as the precious child of the high king of heaven. And so just to summarize those truths then, how does God think about us? Well, truth number one, we are God's beloved children now. Truth number two, not just now, we are God's beloved children forever. So then the question comes, isn't it? How then should we live in light of this truth that we are beloved children of God now and forever? Well, the answer is in verse 3, isn't it? That should be our response. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, when the, per- when the person has a billion pound trust fund waiting for them, you're going to see it in the way they live. I mean, if they're saying it's going to come to them when they're 30 and they know they have that billion pound trust waiting for them, <laughs> I mean, you would say they will be careful with their life. They will be living in line to end that billion pound trust fund when they turn 30. You can always tell a child who has a rich inheritance ahead of them, their demeanor and their focus, right? But John is saying, I hope in Jesus is far more precious. John is saying, I hope in Jesus as God's beloved children now and forever is more strong, more valuable than that guaranteed billion pound trust fund. And because it is, that should powerfully motivate us every day as God's beloved children to live as such in practice. It must motivate us every day to grow, to become like that. You can't tell me you believe this truth and yet you're wallowing in sin. It doesn't make sense. It can't be true. It can't be true because John 3 verse 3 says, and everyone who has this hope in him is changed by it, purifies himself as Christ himself is pure. Now, listen, we'll never be perfect like the Lord Jesus Christ. Until Christ appears on that great day. But all true beloved children of God must cooperate with the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to change us, to perfect us. 
to purify us. And, and the key of that is that we are growing in hating our sin. We are mortifying our sin, putting it to death. We are determined to do that. If you claim to be a true follower of Jesus, you need to examine your life today. Is there any evidence that you are truly growing as a beloved child of God? Do you have evidence of what John talks about here, of purifying yourself? Are you becoming more and more like Christ? Ask yourself that. Are you growing in hating sin in your life? Or have you always just been like this? Based on last year, there's been no evidence. The year before, you have always been like that. The year before, there's been no progress. We can't see any progress. Look, the, the trajectory of the Christian life isn't necessarily a straight line growing. There are ups and downs. But are you heading upwards? Are you becoming more like the Lord Jesus? If the answer is no, beloved, then you are not truly born again. It doesn't matter which pastor, it doesn't matter which church said Give the affirmation to your baptism. It doesn't matter. You have failed the standard of the word of God. And you need to get right with God. Be born again, beloved. Walking with the Lord Jesus is not about form filling. It's heart change. Change. Holy Spirit change. And oh my God is not a weak God. He's not a weak God. If he has performed a spiritual heart transplant in your heart, he will give you new affections, new longings to live for him. There will be a clear evidence of putting sin to death. I'm not saying you never backslide, but a life of permanent backsliding is not a transformed life. It's a dead life. And you must be born again. You must be changed. Beloved, people tell me so many stories about how God has... Uh, how they became saved. I'm not interested in how you got saved. I'm interested in, are you standing on Christ now? Has change happened in your life? Have you been born again? Are you truly is? Is there evidence that from year to year you're growing to become more and more like Christ? If the evidence is no, it doesn't matter. You could be, look, you could be a pastor of any church. It makes no difference. You are heading to hell unless you repent and trust in him. And we need to be very serious with our family members and friends. This is the standard of God's word and we must put it before them. That unless they are changed, it doesn't matter what station of life they hold, they will perish in hell forever. There must be true change. Change that only God can perform. It is serious. I just want to plead with you. I'll just end here today. I have more things to say, but I just end here. Because I feel that we as believers, we take this truth far for granted. Christ has transformed us. He has changed us if we're truly converted. And we must be serious about this truth. Are you born again or not? If you are not born again, cry out to him this morning. Let him change you. Let him make you truly 
converted. Because Jonah's daughters. And everyone who has hopes in him purifies himself and he is pure.